Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talkin' Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan. This is episode 54, and my guest is architect Frank Pont. On a previous podcast, Ron Force shared with me something Golf Digest architectural editor Ron Witten once said. Witten told him, Golf course architects are the most insecure group of people I've ever met. Through my years of talking to architects, I can see how he might get that impression. But insecurity or a lack of confidence is not the impression one gets when speaking to Frank Pont. In fact, my takeaway after talking to Pont is, he's kind of a badass. Perhaps that comes from his Dutch blood and living in the Netherlands, one of the world's most competent industrious countries. Perhaps it comes from working a successful, high-stakes career in the corporate world before retraining himself as a golf course architect in the 2000s. Whatever it is, he's willing to lead any conversation about architecture, and in the usually deferential field of golf design, Pont is the refreshing rarity who isn't reluctant to express an opinion or to speak candidly. Pont spent much of his youth living in different countries, an upbringing that's endowed him with a very cosmopolitan outlook. After his dramatic career change, which he talks about in the podcast, He returned to the Netherlands and founded his own company, Infinite Variety Golf Design. He operates independently, but has created traveling partnerships with architects from several other countries, including Mike DeVries, my guest for episode 13, with whom he works in the U.S. Over the last decade, Pond has become arguably Europe's leading practitioner of historic restoration. Working on Golden Age courses primarily in the Netherlands, U.K., Belgium, and France, he's an authority on the designs of Harry Colt and Tom Simpson, as well as Charles Allison, John Morrison, Herbert Fowler, and Alistair McKenzie. If you like these architects, you'll like this conversation. Pont dives into their design styles and philosophies, talks about some of the differences between golf in the U.S. and on the continent, and shares his thoughts about modern design as well, including his own original courses, like Svinkelze. Frank Skyped in from a Hilton somewhere near Birmingham, England, and the connection got a little glitchy in places. But that didn't detract from a robust, around-the-world conversation. So here he is, the Dutch master, Frank Pont. Yeah, I'm sitting in an exciting Hilton. You know, it probably could be in Jakarta, could have been in Washington, D.C. You know, it's the same everywhere. I think that's the uh, point of those Hiltons, to make you <laughs> kind of make you get lost in the world like somewhere. Models, you know? Yeah. It's, it's somebody once told me, the, what was it, Model 6, is that you didn't even have to switch on the light because every room was the same. So you walked in and you just knew where everything was. Yeah, that's right. exciting life of being on the road. You're, you are in Birmingham, you said? Yeah, I'm in Birmingham. I did work today at Blackwell, which is right. a, um, a Fowler-Simpson course or a Simpson-Fowler. Um, they, they worked on it together. We think that probably Simpson did more of the on-site work. Probably Fowler was involved with the routing. Um, very interesting course uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's a very, very tiny pro- uh, property. It's, it's not very big, and the routing still is very, very good, given how small the property is. So very interesting, lots of triangles, which you would expect from Simpson and Fowler, um, and, and lots of interesting, free, you know, very, very, you know, creative holes, memorable holes, uh, very creative greens, very slopey greens, 
that's really the main defense, plus the old bunkering that had gone lost, which we 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 knew about because of aerial pictures and and sort of photo you know photographs of the of the uh, 1940s and actually earlier. So we knew that the bunkering was very special and, you know, it, it, it sort of entropy it turned it into ovals and we were, we're now trying to bring it back. The other thing which makes it special, it's one of the smallest clubs in the UK. I mean, they have a very small membership. So, uh, which is a bit in similar to another club I work for, which is New Zealand golf club, which is also a very small membership and very, mm-hmm. what I like about them is it's very understated. The clubhouses are, you know, almost like the reverse of what you'd find at a lot of American golf courses. Um, you know, they're small, almost like, you know, time warps. Benevolent neglect is what I would say. Uh, that's maybe a bit harsh, but it, they're, they're very understated. And uh, it's all about the golf course. And, and that's, you know, what it should be in my view. What are the soils like at, at uh, Blackwell? Blackwell is not soil wise is not great. It's 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 basically it's heavy um, it's heavy soil clayish uh, because it's former agricultural. So um, you do need to really think about how you drain it and how you do your surface drainage. Um, it's not like some of the the the, the courses around, say the, the obviously the coastline, but also London. Although a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the famous London courses have a lot of clay, you know, in their soil. I mean, Walton Heath is on clay. Broadstone, where I did a lot of work had a lot of clay layers through the sandy layers. So it's a mixed bag. Sunningdale is also heavier soil than you think. Swinley Forest the same. So, um, But Blackwell is definitely heavier, and that, that means that it's in a very good shape at the moment because we've had a very dry, dry spring, uh, high temperatures, so the course was looking excellent today, you know, fast and firm, playing, you know, saw a lot of people playing golf and a lot of ball, balls bouncing, really bouncing into the green, which always get my, gets me happy. So, you know, Simpson was... You know, if, if there's if he has a calling card, it's it's this very sort of like dentel edged bunkering that's very elaborate, and I imagine it's it's very fun to work with that and try to recreate those forms. Does that pose any on those soils? Does that pose an additional problem to try to get those shapes and those bunkers to work from a drainage standpoint and also from a design standpoint? I don't think it makes a big difference on the drainage because the drainage really is two things: it's try to get the water not to go into the bunkers. Um, you know, and the, and the edge, edges don't really make a difference. Basically, you want like a water, what the English call a water bar to keep the water out. And the second thing is, if it does get in the bunker, you just need to drain the bunkers very well. Um, now, I think it's it's more, you know, it's a very natural edging that he had. And it's it's difficult to recreate. Um, plus, you know, what, what happens is, is like anything I think I mentioned already is, is entropy. You know, over time, things, uh, I, I once listened to a podcast where they said time doesn't love art. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some sense, time also doesn't like, you know, detailing on a golf course. Um, you know, over time, detailing disappears because of entropy. And, and, and we're trying to bring it back. Uh, what, what, what is the case is at Blackwell, we do all the work in-house. So they have a green team, green keeping team that's keen to do all the work. And uh, that means that we've, you know, we've had a learning curve starting, you know, we started six, seven years ago. And by now they've gotten a lot, you know, fair, quite good. I think almost at par with some of the the, the better construction firms in in, in the UK. Uh, but it, it took a while to get used to it. And I think we could still get better in terms of the detailing of some of the edging. Um, we were talking about it today, how we could get that to be even better. Um, you know, I'm working with, uh, you know, one of the, some of the shapers of a, uh, sorry, a, a company called Connor Walsh. They He has one or two finishers that are, 
excellent um, who who I've been working with at New Zealand who are really getting I think to the top level of, of shaping and finishing that we've seen in Europe and uh, so it's almost like it's it's a bootstrapping exercise where you, you you learn a bit here on this project and then you try to use that somewhere else on a project I think we, we it's a lot better than where we were I think a lot of people like it but it could still be better like like anything you could always be better than you're doing now you know you know Simpsons bunkering is some of the most sort of jaw-dropping work in from that period in golf design it's really artistic and spectacular and it's, it's been quite influential i know bill core talked early in his years about how he loved simpsons writing about how you know the edges looked like they were just eroding naturally mm-hmm. and you just said that yeah. that phenomenon actually does happen and, and it is hard to keep those edges how first yeah. of all how literal when you're recreating these this style of bunker how literal are you trying to get to maybe some drawings that Simpson might have left or old aerials are you are you trying to capture the spirit or are you really trying to nail some of the f- details that he provided it's, i think if you <laughs> in marketing you would say yeah well of course we're trying to recreate everything um, i think i think it's tough to do that i think if you have good drawings like you know blackwell we have old pictures of 1926 on the ground of you know, two or three holes. So we know exactly how they look like. And there we can recreate as much, you know, almost as, as much as we can and want. And also because the landforms are still, are still there. And then if you can, why wouldn't you? I mean, I think the model should be that you, I, I mean, when I do re- restoration work, I put, I think the, the, the key thing is to put your ego, leave your ego at the door. And I think that's why some of the, maybe some of the best architects are not the best restorers because obviously they, you know, over time, because they're good, they've also developed big egos and, and, and you see that. So I've, I've, you know, I think the key thing is, is, and do you always succeed? I don't know, but at least you should try to just go back and say, okay, let's, let's try to recreate something that was there as much as possible. Then sometimes you don't have the data and then you have to, you know, luckily for Simpson, some of his most spectacular, bunkers like the one in Harlow and hole number five you know the the fortress but also here number you know number five at um sorry number six at uh at blackwell we have pictures of so we can recreate others we don't or you have aerial pictures and then it start the, it's a bit more guessing work um also you see that his style wasn't always the same everywhere i mean sometimes he would go milder sometimes he wasn't there when the bunkers got built so there is a there is a difference between what he's done uh, and also we know that his drawings like for instance the famous at blackwell there's a very famous drawing of the 11th hole where um, he drew actually five bunkers and then we know from the aerials that they built seven bunkers mm-hmm. so what do you do then I don't know. <laughs> you know, in this case, we're going, for the, we're going for the seven bunkers because we think that probably he changed his mind. I mean, it's the same as if they would find some of my drawings, uh, you know, in 100 years time. Uh, I'm not in the same league as Simpson. But, I mean, if they would find my drawings and they would say, well, this is different than what they built, then I obviously built it because I liked it better than what I drew. And I think that's that's where you then go. But I, in general, you know, you try to follow up. I, I don't like the sort of, well, you know, uh, we're we're improving on Simpson, or you know, I'm not a big fan of changing, of changing courses, the classic courses, especially the better ones, the famous ones, uh, because you have an open tournament and the you need to build a grandstand or have a better 18th hole or something like that. I'm not a big fan of that. I think you should stay as true. I mean, a good example is at Royal Hague, which is a cold course in the Netherlands. We right. that was one of my first sort of big jobs. I was lucky to get the you know I was relatively new in the business, and I, that was a tremendous opportunity. They had thirteen greens that were still original and five that had been changed over time. Now, 
the key goal I had in making the five new, changing the five changed greens back to more cold style was to you know, make them more cold. And my goal was to, at the end of the project, to have 18 greens where if you visited, you wouldn't know for sure which ones were the original cold ones and which ones were, you know, ones that I had done to make them more similar to the other 13. Now, I think that's that's the, I think that's the the acid test. If you you know, if you can see with one glance, oh, this was, you know, we have 17. This happens often when you go to, especially in the UK, well, actually in other European countries. If you go to a classic course, and you see one or two greens that are totally different. And that often is the case where then somebody has come in and, and done a perfectly good green often, but just immediately you can see it's not the same style. Now, probably most golfers don't see that and you know, maybe don't people don't mind, but I, I do. That is something that irritates me because it's so obvious that they haven't spent the time just to look at, especially now where you can get very good contour plans of the original greens. Well, it's like, you know, say if you've got 13 examples of contour plans of original greens, you can draw something similar if you make a new green. Even if you're, a, you know, an average or okay architect or whatever, you should be able to do that. So when you went to Hague for the first time or, you know, when you were first stomping around that property, were those five new greens, were they completely out of character with the other 13? Um... Not really, to be honest, not really. I think one of them, uh, in the end, you know, if you look, we're now getting into details, but the, the, the changes have been done by various architects, and some of them were better changes than others. Uh, two greens were changed by Frank Penning, who, you know, to be honest, was like a disciple of, of the Colts and Simpsons, mm -hmm. etc. He was just like, just after the war. After the war in Europe, you had a generation of, of architects per country. Frank Penning was in the UK and the Netherlands. You had Bernard von Limburger, who was the man in Germany, and you had uh, uh, Javier Rana in Spain. Right. And all of them had, had learned their trade or had had significant interactions with the older architects. So the Penning Greens were very much in style. Basically, what happened there is he, he lengthened holes. Um, but, they, you know, they were a bit – Penning Greens tended to be under, more understated than, say, Colder, definitely than Simpson Greens. And then there were two newer changes, one by, you know, by Carl Phillips and one by um, a Dutch architect who were more out of style and more different. And there, you know, there, there was more required to change them back. I, I wouldn't say they were that uh, that different. I mean, sometimes you do see greens that are very different. We, we have a green at De Pan, which is my home course, number hole number five, which is, it's a par five, where the, the green was changed about 20 years ago. And, and it's just a two plateau green, which is completely, you know, I've taken many architects along and, and every time they come around, it's sort of a doggling and they come around the corner, they see the green, they say, what happened here? Um, and it's, it's everybody from Brian Schneider, you know, from, from Doak's firm to, you know, other people to, you know, anybody that I brought along was like, well, what happened here? And, right. and, and then it's obvious. And obviously it's a good green, it functions, but it just doesn't look in place. And, and guess what, you know, somewhere in the next couple of five to 10 years, we're going to replace that green and try to deliver thing is before they built this green they measured the old green so we have the survey be it a crude one of the old green and we'll probably build that back so it's a bit ironic you know by that time we spend a lot of money just to build back what we had originally well i guess that's that's part of the cycle though i mean that's the that's that's what restoration is all about so simpson was also you know a lot of his golf courses he was known for building some some pretty profound green contours and some some sweeping contour when you're approaching a, a simpson project I'm imagining you're not really able with modern green gra grasses and green speeds to 
to replicate some of those contours that you might know used to be there. Is, is that frustrating to you on any level? Is there part of you that would love to be able to build greens that had that much character? Well, I've done that. I mean, I think it's, it's let's take a step back, which, which I think you're right. I mean, it was interesting. I want when you, you mentioned the bunkering being the thing, that's probably the thing that's most obvious visually. But I, if you would ask me, I would think Simpsons, before I would put before the, the Simpson bunkering, I'd put his green designs. I think his green designs are, well, probably the best that, you know, I, I'm, you know, I like Colt a lot. And I think Colt was probably country love golf, but I think Simpsons greens are, are very special. And I think they're even more subtle than the McKenzie greens. Um, uh, and, and again, if you, if you look at his work, it's, it's, I think the greens are the highlight. I think his routing is also undervalued. I mean, he was one of the first who really went into triangulation. And, and, and so I think the bunker, so that's point number one. Point number two is can you recreate, you know, his greens? Yeah, it's pretty easy. I mean, in Europe, the green, slow, steep, uh, green speeds are a lot slower than in the U.S. So funny enough, I'm doing quite a lot of analyses at the moment for, for you know, for classical courses where I'm, where they get the green surveyed and we do slope analysis just to look at how many slopes do you have. And then if you use the, you probably have seen the USGA sort of stim versus slope uh, curve. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like a, a curve. Basically what it says is the higher the stim, the smaller the slopes can be on your, on your, mm-hmm. on your. So effectively, if you, what you should do is you should measure your greens. If you have classic greens, you should see, okay, what are, what's the spectrum of slopes that I have on there? What's the stimp that belongs to it so that I still have a, a decent amount of, of green surface to put pins? And that's really what you should do. Um, and, and yeah, and then that could mean that you need stimp eight or nine or whatever, you know, a maximum nine. Royal Hague is a place like that, too. I mean, Royal Hague is a bit like Piner's that it has all these upturned saucers, um, which, which means that, you know, if you get the stimp up too high, it becomes unplayable. And so I so basically the, the, summarizing the the message is, you know, the greens, if you've got classic greens, that is your asset. That is, you know, not, the, forget about stimp. You should uh, this whole stimp idea to me is foolish anyways. I mean, one of the, sure. the funniest, funniest episodes I ever had is I mentioned the course, but somewhere in Spain. And we were playing with three guys, all members of the pond. And, you know, so we, we could play decent golf uh, on a place that has like stimp of nine, nine and a half, maybe sometimes. And we got to this place that had stim 13 with pretty undulating greens. And we were, I think, four and five putting most of the, you know, off the green. And it, it, it you destroy the game effectively. So, and this was just not an, an aberration. It was how this course was played every day. And I, I would hate to be a member of that place. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to um, a superintendent on a podcast recently, and, and he, somebody asked him what he estimated Augusta Nationals stim meter reading was because they famously never will release yeah. it or if they take it and i think you know and he said he said he thinks it's about 10 or 11 and yeah. i think that kind of shocked me at first because i think the p- common perception is that you know yeah ask the average person they would guess 13 or 14 but with the slopes that they have in those greens you, you couldn't get them much more than 10 or 11 you just couldn't keep a ball in a green even a professional no well that's that's now yeah. so i mean they're doing the right thing i mean there is a there's a good book about green green speeds um uh, which unfortunately i lost but it, it's 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 you, you probably get it on uh, from a good book show it, and it's it's all about what's the right speed you know and how, what are all the factors influencing green speed and what's the right speed and one of the the first things the book starts with is that where they asked a group of members every you know, every day members came in they would ask them were the greens today too quick exactly right or too slow 
And throughout the year, they varied the green speeds. And what they found is that actually there was an optimum. And it wasn't very fast. It wasn't very slow. It was, there was an optimum for that course with their slopes. And that's an exercise I would encourage every club to go through. I mean, it's a bit of work. But if you do that, it's it, you will get, I think people in the end, it's like the, how do you call it? The, 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 the wisdom of crowds. I think right. you will get to the right mean speed. You, you know, you're not a better course. You're not a you know, tougher course. You're not a, you know, whatever, if your stimp is higher. Um, too slow is not good because then you take out the interest of the greens. Too quick is not good because for two reasons. A, it becomes unplayable. And the, the time, you know, I think it is for every stimp you go up, the playing time goes from from eight. I think it's from eight, if I remember correctly. Every stimp you go up, the, the playing time of a round goes up by 30 minutes. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like if, if everybody in a foursome is taking one more putt of green, you know, and they're lining it up and they're marking it or whatever, that adds up to some serious time. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, I guess my question about recreating sort of golden age green contours in the modern area, maybe that applies more toward American architects who I think I, – I wasn't, I wasn't uh, aware until you told me that, you know, in, in Europe and in, in England, they're not as fixated on green speeds. I mean, I kind of intuited that, but I didn't know until you, you told me as we are here. And I think that American architects and restorations probably have to deal with that co-desire to have, you know, great greens but fast greens as well. And they have yeah. to f- strike that balance. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have to. They have to. I mean, I'm working on one project together with uh, with Mike DeVries uh, in America, and and obviously have traveled a bit. I've I've given some you know talks to cold courses in in America, um, Old Elm. I, I spent a bit of time on Wensia, and what you see is that they they struggle with you know they struggle with the 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 with with that with the the expectation of high speeds, but also like fairway width. I mean, I remember talking. The superintendent, I think it was since uh, in Milwaukee, and and I was saying the fairways are too narrow, you know, and and not that that was only there; that happens everywhere in the U.S. And and I remember the response being, "Yeah, but it's we can't afford these are rich clubs. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to have wider fairways because the maintenance cost would be unbelievable." I said, "Well." Yeah, just make the fairways less perfect. You know, that's what every classical architect said. Don't make the fairways perfect. And then you can get the right width. Width is much more important than having a perfect playing surface. Who cares with with, with fairways? But coming back to 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 greens, you know, I I have built some some uh, I've done a a new build project which had very severe greens um, and people love it or hate it. There are a lot of people who really hate it because they're not, you know, even in, in the Netherlands, we have mostly cold. We don't have. Mackenzie, or we don't have Simpson Green, so uh, people aren't used to it. And uh, you know, the the the, the general the, the average golfer is not a very informed person. Uh, Simpson famously once said, you know, ninety nine percent of you know criticisms of golf members is based on invincible ignorance. And um, you know, it's a bit blunt, but it's pretty. I, I'd say it's true. So, as an architect, you, you if you go out and take risks like building funky greens, anyways, I, I don't mind that because in this case, the, the 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 owners were people who said, you know, you build the golf course you think is best, and make it you know make it different, make it you know so people you know will will understand that it's different, and yeah, people know it's different. Some like it, some don't. So I wonder, as they say in yeah, France, huh? right? Well, sure. I wonder how invincible that ignorance truly is, because a lot of times you hear architects in your position, and, and you probably have encountered this as well. Who you know, you go into a club like you just mentioned Milwaukee, and about clearing out trees and widening it out, and almost yeah. invariably the membership will be against any kind of tree removal. And once the trees are cleared, though, if you can get past that hurdle. 
they come to accept it and they realize you were right. The course does function better. It's aesthetically more pleasing to look at with less trees if they're li- and if they're limbed up and so on and forth. So opinions can change. And I'm wondering if that instance you brought up about you building severely contoured greens or interesting contoured greens at this golf course, did the membership ever come around? If there's initial pushback, do you find that that maybe that ignorance is not invincible? You Once they actually see and experience the change or the, oh, that it, thing that's it, different, they, they do enjoy it? It's a new club. So it's, it was in a rural area of the Netherlands. There's a, a golf course called Swinkelse. And um, yeah, so a lot of the players, actually it has a lot of good players and has a lot of local players. All of the local players have never played golf before they joined, so they don't know. But yeah, not, I'm saying it a bit blunt. They don't know better. This is what they like and expect. And if they don't like it, they would become a member somewhere else. Um I think the club likes it, and it's you know it's 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 highly ranked. Uh, it's a, it's I think it's a good golf course, but I'm biased. And the greens, yeah, some like it more flatter. Uh, if you want to play it safe, you're going to go for flatter greens. But I think it's a differentiator. You know, not every car is the same, not every you know house is the same, and not every golf course is the same. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think what the point was I was trying to get to, but I I, I lost it. I guess uh, I was uh, what I'm. I think when I think about the last twenty years in golf course architecture really mm-hmm. it to me it that one of the stories is the breaking out of assumptions that golfers had held for decades and decades prior to that you know if you think about all the great courses that are built around the world in exotic places and uh, a lot of them have a lot of characteristics that didn't exist in the 1970s and 80s you know they're they're natural they're mm-hmm. sandy they have different bunkering there's width you know there's a reliance on bouncing the ball more these kind of things we're sort of reintroduced to golf in the last 20 years. And slowly, it seems to me, we're pulling the mass of the public back into this thing. And we're changing assumptions. I say we, I'm, I'm not involved in it, but the architects yeah. and the developers are changing the, the, these per- perceptions. And I'm just, I, this kind of goes into this whole thing about, you know, maybe it's, it is possible to once, a player experiences something different once they go to abandoned dunes or, or they go to uh, play lynx golf it does kind of open their eyes to a, a different style and mode of golf and a presentation of golf and a culture of golf that they weren't aware of before so I, i'm optimistic yeah. maybe yeah, that that's, that's, people that's can't true, change but it's no i think that's true but it's no different than say having an appreciation for fine wines or appreciation for good food or you know if all if you've been brought up and with simple food and you've never been to like a you know a really really classy restaurant um then how would you know what good food is so i think that's true i think the other thing is um coming back to the trees i mean trees is a thing that not only you in the u.s but everywhere you're battling with and, and the, 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 there are a couple of misperceptions first first of all people don't realize but you often get the, the argument well one you know it's always been like this let's not change it and it's nature and we should let it do its thing well you know what people don't realize is that tree, you know, the, the, the volume of trees grow by 3% organically per year. So you do nothing for 40 years. You don't cut trees. You, you, you know, it grows annually compound 3% a year. What, when they say, well, let's leave it like nature, what does nature do? Well, nature, it burns down every 20, 30, 50 years because there's a you know, lightning flash. You get fire and it burns down. Well, we don't have burn downs anymore. Pretty much. Uh, well, at least not not, not on we golf courses. Have, yeah, I know, but not on, on some of the courses I work at. So if you want to keep it even the same, you need to cut, you know, just do the numbers. You need to cut 3% of the trees on your property every year to just stay stable. Well, how many right. trees are there on the property? You do the math. I mean, basically, some of the properties I work on have 10, 15,000 trees. 
Now, 3% of that is, you know, uh, 300 to 400 trees. If I would, you know, if you would go and tell the membership, well, let's cut 300 trees, they'd, they'd lynch you. But, you know, if you, if you explain it this way, plus, I think the second thing is um, people are very scared of doing things because they don't they cannot visualize what will happen one of the key things one of the big changes i think which will happen in the next say i don't know 10 20 30 years is going to be maybe sooner is that we'll be able to visualize people maybe in 10 years time you'll walk into a meeting with the members and they all wear their 3d goggles and you'll just say okay we're now going to go on a you know on a trip through the new golf course Hmm. yeah and um, we had a famous soccer player called Johan Cruyff who once said, you, only, you know, he, he always had these simple, you know, one phrases. And one of them was like, you only see it when you see it. And and that's what you often, you know, people don't get it. They don't see it. They don't see it till. And, and that's why one of the key things is to bring in experts. I always work with, you know, with tree experts on pretty much any you know, inland project I work on. Because often when I arrive at a golf course, the first thing I tell them is talk to the tree guy first, because that's more important than all anything I could do. So, yeah, yeah I, I just had back, Eric. Yeah. Sorry, I, I just had Eric Iverson on uh, the last podcast, and, and he yeah. said something that I thought was really smart and other people who listen kind of caught on to it, too. He said 85 percent of the work you can do at a club to improve it is is basically like tree removal and adjusting mowing patterns and that's the cheapest thing to yeah. do yeah. and it makes yeah. you know that's 85 percent of the work the last 15 percent is fiddling around with with the infrastructure and bunkers and greens and you can do that if you want but you can make a bigger overall difference just by trees through trees and, and and grass lines yeah totally agree i mean uh, when i was i think about 10 years ago tom Doak visited me for about a you know, four or five days, I think, or maybe it was a week. And we walked some of the courses in Holland and Belgium. And I think we spent 60% of the time talking about mowing lines. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, how exciting can it be? For some people, yeah. I mean, people love grass almost as much as they love trees. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think that they, I think what I find is the two things that get the biggest, the biggest, um, uh, how do you call it, uh, defensiveness uh, resistance to change is uh, is basically cutting trees and, and changing the route and making routing changes. I mean, you can blow up any individual hole and people will not understand it or accept it, but you change the routing and they get very emotional again. And 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 that's sometimes that's unfortunate because I would say half jokingly, if you want to get fired quickly as an architect, start talking about rerouting your first couple of meetings with the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but sometimes it's the it is something that's important because uh, routings, as we all know, are important under, you know, I, I think even a lot of what I've noticed, even a lot of people who play a lot of golf courses and who are golf raiders don't really see. I know a couple that I have, you know, that I really respect, but they don't see the routing issues. They don't see routing problems. So routings are difficult to see. What you do notice is that if you improve a routing, everybody likes it afterwards. It's, it's another one of these. You only see it when you see it. And, and they tend to be big battles. But yeah, I think you know I would advise any club to look at you know with a, with a good architect look at mowing mowing plans, um, and simplify the mowing. I think that's another thing that the um, that you know uh, a lot of the good architects, Core and, and Doak and Gill, have done is is simplify simplify mowing patterns. You know, I I really dislike the well we got the first cut rough, second cut rough, third cut. You know, ideally you would have three cuts: green, you know, f- call it. Green surrounds four greens tees. That's the second cut, and then fairway, and then that's it. 
Now, that works better on a very, you know, on a very uh, poor sandy soil. Uh, it doesn't work so good on a very, very, you know, uh, rich uh, clay soil. But the, the lesser the lesser cutting heights, the better. And, and especially if you now see that one of the things we see a lot in the Netherlands, I don't know if that's as much in the U.S., but in the Netherlands, you see the robotization of, of, of maintenance is really taking off. I mean, we, we obviously the Netherlands has always been a very uh, uh, an agricultural, we're a tiny country, but we're incredibly productive agriculturally. I think we, we, we knock it out of the park compared to well, even a lot of the rich countries. And therefore, there's a much higher acceptance of robotization. And um, I would say about half of my clients in the Netherlands have all the ferry mowers or robots already. Wow. Yeah. Well, the fact that you're saying wow is amazing because, I mean, to be honest, you know, we're going to see a lot of automation. And the the advantage of that, of course, is that if you do not, a lot of the reason for this is that that the big manufacturers haven't been pushing robots because they are very worried that they will lose clients. The clients are the greenkeepers. Greenkeepers are worried for their jobs, which I think is kind of weird because what you're doing is you're making you're turning greenkeepers into special forces rather than infantry guys. Right. You're getting them to do higher value added stuff. And so, in, you know, if you got if you can today, I was talking with, you know, the greenkeeper and I've, pretty much every week I'm having the same debate. You know, if you can get a robot in, what are you going to do with the one, two, three guys, whatever, who are doing who are sitting on the ferry mower? You know, now, well, I would use them to refine the bunkers. I would hand mow the tees. I would I said, exactly. You're going to you know, you're going to do higher value added stuff. And so I think that's going to be a big trend going forward because, you know, the people I have clients in the UK, there's a club in the north, which basically a cold course, beautiful course. Uh, and they just literally have for 18 hole three greenkeepers. And they, you know, they would they would you know, if they would have a robot for they, they basically told me, Frank, we understand we need to mow the fairways wider, but we can't. We just don't have the people to do it. Well, if you have a robot, you could. Yeah, I think the yeah, I think the initial reaction to that I, I had was probably like most people is like, you know, well, you know, automation is is displacing labor. Um, but you just you pointed out that you could just use that labor in more productive ways. Yeah. So maybe maybe in 100 years time, there won't be a single greenkeeper. But, you know, robots are not very good in most call it difficult tasks. They're not very good at folding towels. Uh, they're not very good at, uh, you know, I'm sure they're not very good at uh, at a lot of the other tasks that are there. I mean, I'm sure you, you'll the, a lot of the mowing will be able to be done in the future by robots, but there's still the, the raking of the bunkers, the, you know, a lot of the, the call it the individual work. And that, that will not disappear for many, many years. If anything, I think we'll first have problem finding greenkeepers before that happens. And I think that's a bigger trend uh, in Europe. We're having trouble finding greenkeepers in a lot of countries. Why is that? Well, why do we have tr- trouble finding plumbers? Why do we have trouble finding carpenters? People want to do, you know, people, people want to go to school, want to go to university. You know, I don't think that's necessary. I think, you know, I think it's a great job. Um, but uh, I think we're, we're, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on doing, you know, jobs with your head rather than with your hands. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't know how it is. Well, we, we, we let's say it this way. We, we, we have that issue in, in Europe. I don't know if you have it in America, but um, uh, it's definitely an issue here. So automation might even help sometimes. Yeah, there's. A, I mean, I don't know about. I don't know if there's a shortcoming of of people who want to be superintendents. Uh, there is a labor shortage. I've, I talked to a lot of architects who they have pro- problems hiring people to do the work on the golf course. You know, just the yeah. those yeah. jobs yeah. that 
kids used to do in high school and, and you know put their way through put themselves through college working in the summers and things like that they can't find young people or any people really to just do those kind of outdoorsy jobs that most of us grew up doing yeah well i mean you know let's not get into politics but most most of the people who were doing that job were coming from south of the border and uh, in your case and for us the same we have a lot of uh, people from eastern europe who do the work and especially a place like germany there are a lot of eastern european uh, green keepers but let's stay out of politics on that one. Let's stay out. Well, you mentioned the, about routing and how some raiders, even knowledgeable raiders, often don't pick up on little things in routing uh, difficult spots. Can you give me an example of, of what a difficult spot in routing would be that, that, you've, that you can see that maybe somebody else doesn't? Well, it, it has to do with sites. I mean, I often encounter, I mean, you know, we, we just had a new course open in the Netherlands where, uh, and again, I won't mention a name, but but it's 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 on an imperfect site. It's a, it's a long site. It's a relatively long site. Um, and what, what that means is, and, and, and I, I, I actually did some routings for the site, so I, I know about it. It, it. It's so because of that, you can only, it's, it's a lot of out, you know, out back, out back. Not much direction change. No, no real chance to do triangulation, um, which are all things that make it important. Now, if you've got a flat site, routings is much easier than if you have a site that's undulating. Huh? So, if you, you know, something like Sam Valley or whatever, or you know, or or the Heathland courses around um, London have more undulations. So there, there, that's more important. In the Netherlands, it's flat. But even on a flat site, if you've got a, a very long site you're going to have less, your routing is going to be less exciting than if you have, um, you know, a, a site where you can go in multiple directions or you, especially the triangulation can be done. Why, and why triangulation? Because that means that, you know, you can, for, there are a couple of advantages to that. One is that you, you, every hole changes direction. So you play a hole and then you change direction. You don't have the feeling that you're going, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I think, you know, Doke once said, nicely which was you know you'd like the routing should be almost like how you'd walk the property if it was no golf course right not sure that always works but it's it's a nice sort of analogy um and i think i think that's one the the other one that's important with a with a the other one that's with is important with the routing is that uh you know people are starting to play shorter golf that means my home course depan has a loop of uh, nine a loop of six and a loop of three holes uh, that's perfect. I mean, my kids are, you know, I would say mildly uh, unenthusiastic golfers. Uh, I, I, I don't force them to play golf, but I mean, they already play hockey. They play tennis. They do this, they do that. And I tell them, well, let's at least get you to learn the basics of the swing. But, you know, I can get them for six holes. I, and nine is already pretty difficult and 18 is out of the question. And I think, you know, with good routing, you should be able to build, um, you know, variety and build uh, loops. So it's it's both the loops. It's also the directions. It's how you use the landscape. Um, and I guess that's why it's, you know some of this. Uh, it's also something that requires smartness. I can tell by the routing how smart an architect is, and that might be controversial that I'm saying this, but if you, you need to be smart to do good routings, and you know just look at the people who do the best routings in the industry, they tend to be very smart people. And so. That's the one place. I mean, obviously, to be a good architect, you need to be smart. You need to be creative. You need to be artistic. Um, and the routing is the, the part where the smartness comes out. Um, it's also, by the way, the, the part where probably artificial intelligence will come up at someday and, and be able to. I've always, if I ever would get a doctorate, but I don't think I ever will get one in my life, it would be about, you know, developing artificial intelligence to do routings. 
because again it would help a lot of the architects who are not good at routings because the problem is if you if you build a bad routing it's there forever it's never you can't you know it's hard to repair a bad routing mm-hmm. a bad hole can be repaired much much easier than a bad routing so that was well, a bit I guess of that goes back to so you're saying that artificial intelligence the, the very word there is intelligence and the the reason we get bad writing sometimes is due to for lack of a better word and I won't pin this exactly on you but but not enough intelligence because it take you have to be really smart to make a good a good routing so what what are the mistakes that I guess see as a as a as a consumer I think that that routing is the most mysterious thing and I think it's the thing that that the average player even if they're into architecture can understand the least because there's so much backstory there's so much knowledge that we don't have privilege to to understand a routing bad routings stick out i think most of us can pick out bad routings but good routings there's something almost ineffable and subtle and elegant about them it's very hard to put your finger on on what how and why it works um but uh, but when a, a bad routing happens and you're talking about people who aren't as good routers what are the mistakes that they make well walking back 100 yards after you've you know to the next tee uh, long walks between greens and tees in general. Sure, I, think, sure. I think that's that's like almost rule rule number one. Uh, rule number two is just um, you know basically in the end you want to fit in a, a great you know you want to you want to get variety and quality and change of directions short walks. Those are basically the basic elements. So it's not that hard what you're looking for. What is tough is to get them. And, and what I find, I think the biggest issue is, is that, well, this is an assumption because I'm not in the head of the, of the people who did the routings, is that my guess is that, that a lot of architects only do one or two routings and then the clients go, yeah, well, they have no clue. They don't know if there could be a better routing and they accept them. And, then, you know, I, I've seen many routings where you, you know, spend maybe a day and you say, well, I could have come up with two, three better routing sometimes they're not possible because of regulatory reasons or you know because endangered animals or something or, or wetlands or whatever but you know most of the cases is just that they haven't spent enough time doing it i think there's a tendency to want to go to call it um the level of more detailed design too quickly and what i find is that on a lot of projects i mean we i just spent we just opened a, a reversible nine hole course in germany and I think we must have done 15 routings for that. Um, for nine holes, you know, before right? we, Yeah, yeah, and just nine holes. It's nine. Well, it's a it's a nine hole. Call it par three, par four course. That's not reversible, and then a nine holes that's reversible. And yeah, so and and you know, the I think the final result is a lot better than the first routing that we came up with. So you need. I think it was Bill Core who said, you know, what's the, the most important thing in, in golf design is time. Well, the, for routings, that's definitely true. You know, I've spoken to architects, you know, you said sometimes they don't maybe work on routings hard enough or, or, you know, look at enough variations, but I've spoken to architects who, you know, told me they did, you know, 25 routings for the site, and, uh, the broke up in all different ways. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, really? Because I, I hate this routing. There's so many issues with it. Um, so I never know. If, yeah. Is that just, is that literally the best that could have been done on that site? Um, you bring up environmental regulations, certain, you know, there are always these things yeah. that, that, you yeah. know, we don't know exactly what the obstacles were, but maybe it just, it, I definitely did think it does come down to the quality of the property and the, as you said, the quality of the mind behind it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's controversial. I'm sure some people are going to like me less because, but I think it is true. I think that, you know, again, 
yeah, I've, I've seen architects that are very creative. Their green sites are very good, but their routings can be really poor. And I've seen people who have very good routings and very boring golf yeah. holes. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, and, you know, let other people decide where, where I am at. Uh, you know, you know I, I think, I think, you know, I, coming from a different angle, you mentioned that, you know, earlier. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm originally an engineer. Um, so I think I would I would have to work harder in the creativity uh, department than I would have to work in the you know call it routing department, mm-hmm. um, and then you know on the playing side. So I mean, if you think of the three main elements, huh, sort of like you know route you know routing individual holes, and then how beautiful are they, and how do they play? Well, beauty is of course also something that's subjective. Playability is also well, you have general elements, but like the strategy. Do you want to play strategic holes? But I think everybody basically designs strategic holes or at least tries to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can so, emphasize different aspects of that, different elements. Yeah, of- exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, you got, you know, designing greens. I mean, you could, I think some people are better at, at designing greens than others. And then some people are better at designing bunkers. But And then to be fair, I mean, I always have to laugh. I have to remember my, my mother once asked me, did, you know, when she first visited one of my projects, she said, did you design every hill in this in this golf course <laughs> and and i said no mom i mean basically i designed the basic idea and i've designed the greens but the shapers are so important you know in building all the shapes and that's why you know a golf course that's built with good shapers you know is is going to be better than a golf course this with the same architect built with not good shapers that's what i mean again going back to the last two decades three decades that's that's been borne out the talent of shaping and the level of detail that's been put into the yeah. best courses over the last you know couple decades or this generation is staggering compared to what came before to be honest to be honest they don't get enough credit i think you know i think they don't get enough credit i think the architects have hogged uh, a lot of the credit uh, for a lot of the courses and i think the the shapers should have gotten a lot more but then the people in the industry know who gets the credit for what and who who's good and you know who's better at things and et cetera. but yeah i'm trying to help turn the tide on that and give you know expo- turn the spotlight on them a little bit as much as i can but let's go back it's, to uh, yeah. how you did get to where you are uh, as you mentioned before you come from a different background you didn't sort of fall out of out of the womb as a golf course architect you had another career before this take us back to uh, what you were doing before you made a big career switch? Well, I think, first of all, why I've got an American accent is because I grew up in the Philippines. My father was a, my father was a, a how do you call it, an, uh, an expat for Phillips. And so we lived abroad till I was about seven, uh, went to American schools. And that has had a big effect on me. Also, you know, basically, I, I, I'm almost half, I, I only read English books, for instance, because of that. Hardly any Dutch, although I'm, I'm you know, my nationality is Dutch. Uh, what I went to engineering school basically after finishing high school. I, I moved back when I was seven to the Netherlands and um, went to Delft University, which is one of the top technical universities in the world. Did civil engineering because obviously in the Netherlands that's a big thing. Uh, specialized in geo mechanics, soil mechanics, actually, funny enough. Uh, worked for uh, Shell, you know, uh, building offshore platforms in Norway. For a while, and then I, you know, Norway is a great country, but it rains a lot, and it's a bit depressing in the winter. And after two years in a in a fjord, I kind of discovered that maybe that wouldn't be the rest of my life uh, doing that. And um, I basically, by accident, I, I I took a test, and the test basically uh, back at my university because that was you could do a test, a sort of you know affinity test, what you're good at, and basically the test came 
answered business 100 percent and that was kind of annoying because i just finished my engineering degree <laughs> so the the dean then said well there's this scholarship that you can go to american universities um f to study business and that's you can go to harvard and stanford and chicago and you know and i was like oh that sounds nice and um so I, I applied, and I had no clue. I, obviously, looking back, I was extremely lucky to get into Chicago, uh, and I also had a scholarship. So basically, all of a sudden, I was studying business in in Chicago, you know, obviously one of the better schools in in the U.S. And um, uh, my parents didn't have the money, so it was a full, you know, basically a, a loan, student loan, which was amazing for at that time. I mean, just taking out a hundred thousand dollars. No, my parents didn't have the money, and I had no money either. So. But everybody told me it's a smart thing to do, and I thought they were right, and I think, you know, luckily they were right. And um, and then I, you know, became went into a business career. First started off in consulting, briefly at McKinsey, and then after that at a company that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, a company called Monitor, which was a, a Harvard um, consulting strategy consulting firm. Spent about six years there, and did a lot of telecoms, and then I got headhunted into uh, the city, into London, to do M and A which was great. I mean, I remember that they, this was a company called uh, Merrill Lynch, not again, not existing anymore. And they, they said, well, um, we can get into any boardroom, but we never have anything to say. So we, we need somebody like you to have something to say when we get into the boardroom. This is, you know, and, and, and this was basically M and a work. Uh, I'm saying it a bit abbreviated, but that, that was the gist of the message. And basically I was a, a telecoms expert, and they said, we'll teach you M&A, and that's what they did. So I spent about five, six, seven years, uh, six years in total then in the city, working first for Merrill and then for Deutsche. Yeah, by the end of it, I was head of global telecoms for them, and uh, my life was basically sitting in airplanes and flying from A to B and meeting people, and that was about it, which got a bit boring after six years. And, um, and then I started thinking, well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And um, and I thought I want to do something creative, and then that that one was then the the, the quest. My, well, how do you find something that's creative that you think you can be good at? Because I knew for myself I didn't want to do stuff that I wouldn't be good at, and uh, I knew I wasn't going to be a good writer or a good sculptor or a good painter. Or, uh, and uh, and then I saw the you know two year golf architect education in Edinburgh, and I thought that's it, let's try that and. I, I remember sending out, you know, and then I thought, okay, before I do that, and I got accepted, um, and I thought, well, before I do that, I better make sure I like it. So I remember sending out like 10 uh, faxes, those days were still faxes, to all the famous architects, and uh, never heard back from eight of them, of course, as you would expect. And there were two that came back. Uh, one was European Golf Design, and they, they, they wanted to talk, and the other one was within 30 minutes was David Kidd. And uh, he faxed back, and there were two things that struck him. One was that we were both members of Makrohanish. Um, we're both members of Makrohanish, and um, I was an investment banker, and or an ex-investment banker, and he was just building Nanea for two very financial, important people. Mm -hmm. um, and he needed to well, do a contract, and he wanted my input on that. So basically the deal was he... If I helped him on that front, he would then let me be a grunt uh, on, uh, on on a project he was doing at that point, uh, which was in Ireland called PowerScore. So I did that. I was the grunt. He sent me. He did, had me do all the menial jobs that he could think of. Um, now he was very nice. He was actually he he was instrumental in getting me into the industry, and I'll, I'll always be very, very grateful to uh, to David. Um, and then you know basically I thought yeah this is what I want to do, and and then studied stu did the studies. 
um, moved back to Amsterdam. And, and one of the reasons, I mean, I, I didn't want to go and become a shaper because I wanted to have a family, didn't want to, you know, go into the top echelon and, and be in Barnboogles this year and, you know, Kyoto next year. And because effectively you can do that, but you won't have a family life. And I decided to just settle in, in, in Holland and try to, you know, start my own business and work in Europe. And that's, that's sort of the long, the long version of the story. And so, you know, it seems to me like, you know, you, you almost wanted to test yourself in, in the creative realm. You said, you know, you were looking to do something yep. creative. Do you have to, do you have to push yourself into creativity? Is that not something that comes natural with your more analytical tendencies? Well, I think, I think my biggest weakness is writing. So I, I, for me, writing a, you know, if I have to write like a report, it will be a good report, but it's like giving birth. Now I've never given birth. So uh, female listeners apologize for that, but, but it, it's, it's painful for me and I'll get right. there, but it's not my favorite thing. I'm, I'm more of a numbers and a draw, but I, I think creativity is hard to tell. The only thing I know is that my, my mother was a, how do you call it? My mother was an unlawful child of a, of a, of a, a relatively famous painter in the Netherlands. And my father's, so the father of my father was a inventor at Philips. So I don't know. I'm not sure how creative I am, but I, let's say there could have been genes that it could have come my way that are, that, you know, one from a painter, although I have no skills in painting or drawing, and from an inventor. I think I'm probably more on the inventor side than the, uh, the artist side. Right. I, and there's no way to know the answer to this, but I'm wondering if most architects are strong in one sense and and not as strong in the other. I mean, I'd like to, I'm sure everybody would like to think that they're balanced and and they address their weaknesses, but I wonder if there's a way to you know, if, if people in your profession think of themselves as one way or the others. I'm sure there are a lot of people who consider themselves more sort of on the analytical or engineering side because that's such a huge part of the profession as well, and others who need a lot of help with that and they're just more naturally creative. I think I think the best people are are working in a very good teams. It's like anywhere. I mean, when I was in consulting or in banking, and it's the same in in architecture. It's just some people get the spotlight. I think you know, Doak likes doing routings. I don't know what Bill Core likes best. I don't know what Gil likes best. I mean, Tom's been very vocal about it. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I like doing routings. I mean, when I work with people, I I. I you know, for instance, I, I've been working with uh, a very good shaper called Connor Walsh recently, uh, well, not recently for a lot, of, a lot of years, but recently again. And, and, you know, and also with some of the finishers, a guy called Jamie, who's very good. We, we And I enjoy working together and getting to a better result by talking about things and saying, what should we do here or there? I think I think if you're just a one man band and you don't, even though I've, you know, my company is one person, and I, I work a lot with partnerships. And I think... I think what the best projects are almost like jam sessions. I've, I've said this before on Golf Club Atlas. Is, is is what you really like to do is almost go in. I'd love to do a project whereby it would be even like a jam session where you go in and just start talking. I think some of the projects at the moment are still very hierarchical. Sometimes you need that. But I think it could be good to just to give everybody some room. You know, like at Swinkelsa, one of the greens was designed by Connor Walsh. He, he was basically, I said to him, just do your thing, see what it will be, and then let's discuss it when, you, when it's ready, you know? Right. And, yeah, I, I think it's, I think, I think the, you know, you, you get the best results if you work with a talented group, and then when everybody tries to do what he's best at, then you get the best results. Again, helps if you don't have too much egos there. Yeah, and we've talked about this topic quite a bit on this podcast 
and okay. that that's been the biggest change in this generation is is the the delegation and the willingness to hear other voices on your team and the quality of shapers where in the decades that preceded that you had the uh, architect who walked in with a set of blueprints blueprints rolled up under his arm in a suit and loafers and hands the plans over to a contractor and then he comes back and checks on it and you know in two weeks or three weeks or whatever so there wasn't a lot of and the contractor's just trying to execute what he sees on the paper so there's not a lot of creativity or or, uh, creative flow in the situation like that and probably turned out you could tell that in the finished product well, yeah, you could absolutely turn it. I mean, basically the simplest thing which you can see, I can always tell how much an architect has been on site by, by standing on the tees because uh, you draw tees on a, on a, you draw tees on a, when you do a project and, and, and then when you get in the field, you often change them. You, you know, it could even be like three yards to the left or five yards to the right will be a much better space than where they are in the drawing. And that, that's, it's funny, but that's like the, the giveaway where you can tell if an architect hasn't been on the site as much as he should have. Mm-hmm. So when you went back to the Netherlands, I guess, you know, the Nether- Harry, um, Harry Colt had a very kind of interesting relationship with the Netherlands. He designed a lot of golf courses there, like eight or something. Maybe my, yeah. my number might be quite right, but it, it, for such a small country, his presence there was great. And that's where you relocated. First of all, what did you know about Colt before you got into golf course architecture and secondly at this time when you're uh, entering the field and developing your practice were there other people in uh, the UK or Europe who were also getting into the restoration of Colt courses well I mean I, I was incredibly lucky in that my parents um, lived in Eindhoven and um and although my main sport was hockey and tennis, uh, but mainly hockey, uh, I think I started playing golf when I was 16 because they, they were a member at a place called Eindhoven, which is a Harry Colt course. And uh, so I grew up on that. And, and, and for me, the aha moment was really when, because I never thought of this. I mean, but what the aha moment for me was when I lived in London and I was a member, again, I won't mention the, the course of a new course that had received many, many rewards and and accolades and um and i was living in london and i decided it was tough to join some of the old courses i joined this new course and i played there for about a year and i got bored i basically quit and i thought well why and this was almost the nucleus why i was interested why i got interested into into golf architecture i was thinking i've played eindhoven's for from donkey's years and i'm never bored there and why am i bored at this golf course and this golf course is famous won all these prizes and etc and i'm bored and the, the reason is strategy. It lacked strategy. It was just basically visually very interesting. But, um, you know, you played the same strat- same course every day and there was no, you know, there's no variety. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that was for me. So that's how I got this thinking about architecture. I was lucky that it was um, that, that I, I grew up on a cold course, not knowing that. When I then started, uh, it for me was very natural in Edinburgh to say, let's do a graduation project on Colt, or a thesis, small thesis on Colt, uh, and then, you know, looking at all the Dutch courses. Now, we then had a, a trip to London, to the London area, and I was lucky enough to the, the little contest, basically Swindley Forest said, let, you know, we have a problem with our fourth hole, the famous par three. Can, can the students write a solution to it? that my solution was picked as the winner so that helped and then when i came back into holland i naturally went back i mean my first job was for for my home course they 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 had a par three and there was a plan to pull you know basically there's a big lake in eindhoven 
And uh, if, you know, if a modern architect would have built the course there, there would have been 12 holes over, around, through the lake. Right. And Colt didn't even touch the lake. You know, you see the lake from a distance, but there's no hole where you even get close to it, really. So the 16th hole is a hole that plays back to the, towards the lake. And over the lake, you see the clubhouse. And uh, they had had a plan of another architect who had suggested digging a sort of a, a, a you know, putting pulling the lake in front of the green <laughs> and and again they said well you know i have this plan what do you think of it and i i said well guys you know cold never ever 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 used water where he could avoid it so now mm-hmm. we're going to pull a lake in front of the front of a green and they're like oh okay we didn't know that and, and you know again a lot of clubs not because they're stupid they just don't know all these stuff so unfortunately fortunately they didn't do that plan and from there on I started working with them then I you know and then they talked to these these are small communities so they talked to the other clubs and I managed to get into you know to work for a number of them and they like that and obviously it helps that you you speak Dutch you know about Colt none of the, the other Dutch architects were specialized into Colt because they were building golf courses that was in the you know end of the 90s they were still building um, so there was almost like I was, I was extremely lucky, you know, uh, being lucky is an art and, and I was lucky to be, spe- you know, to come in knowing a lot about cold in a market, which was, you know, friendly, didn't have that much competition because none of the other, other architects were focusing on it. And that's how I was able to build up, um, you know, knowledge and, and, and a knowledge base and a client base and then get some, you know, get some successes and, and then what happened is I got a phone call from, you know, oh, no, I got a phone call f- about by somebody who wrote, you know, Creating Classics, uh, uh, Harry Lord, uh, who basically wrote the book on cold and asked me to write a chapter on the Netherlands and I, on the Benelux. And I did that. And then somebody read that in the UK, a cold course, and they invited me. And, you know, that's how I basically, even though I didn't want to travel, started traveling again. And, um, and now I'm working through pretty much throughout most of Europe on a lot of the classic courses. You've touched a lot of cold courses. You've somewhat of a specialist in, in his designs and, and his restoration. If there is such a, th- such a thing, what, what kind of feeling yeah. do you get after, you know, after you've seen so much of his work and studied his work, what kind of feeling do you get when you walk on his golf courses? Is there something that that's unique to Colt that that's moves you or is special to you? I think Colt was, um, you know, I think if you compare him, people often ask me to compare him to, to, um, to say Tom Simpson. I mean, Colt was very, Colt was a, a craftsman, was a very, uh, per, uh, how do you say it, predictable is maybe not the word. I sometimes say boringly consistent. Uh, that's too negative. But what I, what I tried it, that's, you know, because I'm inaccurate, but what I'm trying to say is was very consistent. I mean, Colt had a number of rules and you can almost say if, if one of these rules is breached, you know, it was changed after he left. Uh, like if you have a tree that's really in the playing line of a hole, it's it was planted after he was there. If you have, um, you know, an even and you know symmetrically defended green site, it was done after he left. You know, uh, so Colt was very. It's in some sense it's easier to restore a Colt course without much information than it is to restore a Tom Simpson course because Simpson was crazy as a bat sometimes and would do crazy things. Uh, you, you know, Simpson said, like, well, it's very important to put a, a very weak hole in once in a while to show people how good the other holes are. Uh, so Colt wouldn't do anything like that. Colt was much more like, these are the rules, these are the things. And, and also within their, you know, partnership with Morrison and Allison, they, they, they talked a lot together. They exchanged visits. So one visit, it's some, you know, like some of the modern practices do as well. He, he, he would show up, Colt would show up, and maybe the next visit, Morrison would show up, um, 
he often worked in pairs, so either with Allison or with Morrison. So, but they would all have they would be singing off the same sheet, and um, so let's say it this way: what you can see, if there's a lot of original stuff, Colt, you can see, you know, good design, strategic design, good routings. Colt was pretty good in routings. Very good par threes usually. I mean, if you get to a cold course and the par threes aren't interesting or good, something really dramatic happened. Um, you know, something bad happened, and you have to find out what ha- what happened. And that's where you then start digging. You get old aerial pictures. You know, all the stuff that I think was done almost sooner, earlier in the U.S. than it was done in in in, in, in Europe. Also, because you have aerial pictures that go further back, and um, you know, you try to get as much information. Unfortunately, you know, I, I was half jokingly say half the uk golf clubhouses burned down in the last 50 years so with that a lot of the archives so a lot of places don't have that much and that's where some of the say you know people who collect stuff i, I from an early age on started working with uh, paul turner right. uh, who's one of the guys who's collected a lot you probably have heard his name or mm-hmm. simon haynes is a guy I, I i met when i was doing work at uh, colt course in birmingham caught yeah. No, and he's another Twitter. one of these guys who's on on Twitter a lot. He's he's a great guy, great yeah. good player. Uh, I've tried to pull him into the architecture business, but I think he he still needs to do some real work for a number of years. Uh, but he could be a good architect. He's a smart smart man, uh, good player, a good eye for things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you work with people who collect stuff. Um, you try to get the old aerials, um, and uh, and again, nothing special that that other people do the same. And then you try to try to learn from them. Um, and and in some sense, as I said, the good news is that you know Colt had seven rules or whatever. You know, you go through them, and, and then it becomes clear where things are really different. I mean, he used an uneven number of bunkers around greens in most cases. Sometimes he didn't, but you know, if you if you have two bunkers around a green, it's always like well. Either it was one or it was three, but it wasn't two originally. Uh, and, and then you go back. Air, old aerials help you then to see what happened over time. Uh, a good example is is, is Kenimer, uh, Lynx course in the Netherlands, where when I started working, almost all the greens had symmetrical bunkering left and right of the green. And I, I said, well, let's go back and look at old aerials. And luckily they had aerials after, you know, every 10 years from the 1930s. And what you saw is, Every ten years, new bunkers were appearing to, you know, fill up the space on the on the, on the other side of the asymmetrically defended green, because probably the green committee thought that oh, we need to make it tougher. Let's put a bunker on the other side. I, I was kind of see an analogy in Bill Cora and, and Harry Colt. I think that you know back in the early part of the 1900s, Harry Colt would have been the Bill Cora of his day. They have a lot of similarities that I see. They're both considered like real kind of gentleman guys. I think everybody liked them and had a lot of respect for them personally. The way that they would delegate, you talked about how mm-hmm. Colt would work with, with Morrison and Allison and, yep. and, uh, and McKenzie. I think they had a little contentious relationship, but there was a, you know, it was, a, what, he wasn't a monolithic leader. He, he definitely likes interacted and spread the ideas around. He kind of had a less is more approach. He was really one of the first, you know, part of that transition into architecture that was responding to the land using natural features and not o- trying to overpower the land or look artificial you know to have very quiet approach sort of a le- you know that just that 
sensible sensibility and let the let the earth and the site kind of speak through the architecture so it's not always flashy but it's just it's just right on and it works well you know i'll tell you honestly i've never met bill bill core he's probably the, the the one person i'd love to meet most and in, in the you know I, I don't have like you know, always have these who would you want to meet and this and that but i mean bill i've never met i've, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him so he must right. be either right. a saint or a really nice person um he's obviously done amazing work uh, pretty much everywhere where he's been. So to be liked to do amazing work it means he's a special person. And I'd love to. I'd love to meet him. And uh, you know, maybe one day that will happen. And then I can tell you. I I, I don't know if he would be like Colt. I think although Colt, you never met you never met Colt either. So maybe <laughs> no, I never met Colt. I, I read a lot about Colt though. I think Colt was um, probably the way what I've read about. You know, I think Colt was probably a bit more serious, a bit more um, uh, boring. Is not the good word, but he was a very straightforward uh, person. But he was also very. I think he was a very honest person and a very nice person. I mean, what a lot of people don't know is that he paid off the debts of McKenzie uh, when McKenzie, even though you know they they never. I think I don't think they were on bad terms, but they weren't on very good terms. Maybe they definitely split. But when McKenzie died and he had debts, he he helped the widow of McKenzie pay off the debts, which again must mean. I mean, a it means he's a good person, and he obviously respected McKenzie enough to do that. When you look at Colt's work at fantastic natural obviously like natural or like open link sites like at rye or, or poresh or kinemar and then you consider his work you know around london at the classic courses like swinley forest and sunningdale new do you see him doing anything fundamentally different or is 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 there a unity in in the way his holds work even though they're on different completely different styles of sites uh I would say the only thing that's different is that he would. Uh, I mean, Colt. If you look at him, he had multiple phases in his life, in his, his say his artistic life. I mean, I think you can almost say. Uh, talking with Paul Paul Turner about this, uh, we, you know, you almost get to like three phases, like the early times in which he did some amazing of some of his most amazing work. Then you get the Roaring Twenties, and then you get the sort of the the the, the Depression Thirties, and you know, the beginning was. You know, more primitive, you know, you're talking 19, you know, 1900, 1905, 1908, 1910, 1913, you know, those those periods where, you know, they, they didn't have they didn't have dozers. They didn't have digging machines. It was horse and cart and, 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 and that's it. So it was it had to be minimalistic. And obviously, if you have to be minimalistic, then then working in, in links areas is I mean, we, we have land in, in Holland where we, we believe it or not. I mean, if, if Holland would have been part of the UK, we would have had 50 of the top 100 courses in Holland. I mean, because we were so late in the game and building golf courses, we were too late to put them in the in the links areas. But we have some of the best links land in the world um, in the stretch between, say, The Hague and the, the north of the Netherlands. Um, OK, so. Coming back, if you then go inland, if you go inland, it, it can be harder to you to be mean. You're going to have to build things that are, you know, not that weren't there before, like green sites. Uh, and there you can see that some of his earlier work can be a bit cruder because he didn't have the equipment. Uh, maybe some of the sites weren't as, as, as nice as the links sites that he had. Uh, obviously, he had great inland sites like the pond is a great inland site. Um, Pine Valley obviously was one. Uh, then, then of course the results could be great. But if 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 the land was less promising, then you know sometimes the results would be a bit well crude is maybe too hard, but it would be less sophisticated. The routing would still be good. The strategy of the holes would still be good. It just the aesthetics would be a, li a little bit less uh, amazing. 
uh, in the end, you know, if you get a bit of, you know, if you if you build Barnboogle, it's something in Barnboogles or something in Band of Dunes is going to be a nicer result than if you build in a flat farmland in the Netherlands. Uh, and that's, I think that was the case in Colt's days as well. You, you know, some of his courses. Uh, but then if you look one level deeper, some of his maybe less visually interesting courses can still be very good and interesting courses to play. And sometimes he did find very interesting land. I mean, there's a course called Bransmith Castle, which is a, a, a cold course near, uh, you know, Durham in the north of England. And it, it plays over some of the most spectacular ravines that you ever see, uh, similar to what you see at the Addington. And, and uh, but then there's some, also some mundane holes on that same course. So you, it shows you that you are very dependent on, on the, the property that you get. If you were to go back and, and get a job to restore and, and- yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have. Uh, so maybe this is a little bit of a hypothetical, or maybe not. But a course from Colts earlier, say for uh, you know something that was built in nineteen before nineteen ten, and you know that the methodology of building that course was limited because the, of the technology, and you know, it, it, as you said, it may look crude. Would you try to recreate that crudeness if it had been worn away through time and softened or eroded? Would you? It, would that be something you would deliberately try to do? Is to try to recapture that. 1907 look i i think where i would do that is in the bunkering and uh, i wouldn't do it in i mean i would do it in the bunkering i would do it in the greens i would not do it with the tees because some of his tees were so small they were literally this you know you know three by three yard triangles almost uh, we've we, i i remember finding some of them in, in eindhoven in, in places and, and they would be tiny so that that would just be not practical um, the other place where I would deviate from it would be um, uh, the green surrounds, because some of the green surrounds would drop, literally just drop off in the back, which would be both a health and safety factor. Uh, I, I literally knew uh, one of the, the course managers on a course that I worked at basically flipped over with his with his you know, tractor, um, you know, on one of those sites. So I think it's a health and safety issue. So. Uh, and and it's also I think that's where you then it's always dangerous to say if Colt would have had the equipment da 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 he would have what you see is where he had the possibility to have nice transitions from his greens to the green surrounds he did that and it's only where he didn't have the means where he went to the more cruder more steeper um, transitions so yeah it, those would be the two areas where I would not go back and restore the call it the the, the full historic one. Uh, and all other areas I would, green shapes, uh, fairway shapes, uh, bunker shapes, especially the bunkers, because there's no reason not to have the bunker out of those uh, ages uh, right. to replicate those. That's the age-old question nowadays, is if, if Ross and, and McKinsey and Colt and Tillinghast would have had access to the type of machinery that we had, in, you know, beginning in the 1960s, really, and going forward, would they have created completely different style of courses i'm sure everybody would have used it but would it have been used correctly and and i think i've heard you know tom fazio is famous for saying you know donald ross's course wouldn't look the same because he'd use machinery and he'd be all over you know using the current technology and that that could be possibly true but then on the other hand we have architects today that are working building new courses that use machinery but but in a very light way so why wouldn't the architects of the 19 teens and 20s have also implemented it in a very light with a light touch basically if you go through you know if you go through the uh, i've distilled sort of cole's writings because he didn't write very much but what i've read of him into sort of seven key points and the first two points are work with nature 
and if you know if you design anything artificial make it look natural you know how many uh, i can think of many people who've used dozers without mentioning names you know who you know who who would not fit those two those two and i think if cole would have had dozers or if uh, Mackenzie would have had dozers, I think Mackenzie had them later in, in his life. I think uh, he did use them in America. But if he would have bigger machinery, I think they would still try to, I mean, basically, if you've got a great site and you have a good routing, you, you don't need that many, uh, you don't need that much, you know, machinery. The only thing that machinery does is it makes work quicker. So you can make, maybe Donald Ross would have built 1,200 courses instead of 600. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I'm no, I'm just seriously. I'm just joking. In that respect, he probably their output could have been bigger. I mean, it's the same. What if Cold could have taken a plane like I did? I mean, yesterday I was in, I was in Madrid. Today I'm in Birmingham. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be in Amsterdam. Next week I'm going to be in Brussels. For if you read the old letters that Colt would write to the secretaries or to the you know to the owner, well to the the committee members of is like, well I'm going to take the boat and then the train and then three days later I'll be at your place and then I'll take the train on and I'll go to, you know to Hamburg and so I think I think it's you know I think their efficiency would have increased and uh, I think. Uh, they they were they had the benefit of working on amazing sites. I think that's more important than the fact that they lacked dozers and and um, now it would have been different if they would have worked on very poor sites without dozers, etc. Then then you know obviously they, there would hurt. I think the thing that hurt them more is that they they had it took a long time to travel. Yeah, and it would go back to temperament too, because just as nowadays you have architects who only want to take on two or three jobs a year max, and that's a choice, whereas other architects would take on fifteen if they could get to work. So I, I would assume that it would be the same at any at any given moment in time. You just have temperamental differences in how you wanted to approach the field. Yeah, and I think it, yeah, but it also depends on how much do you need the money. I mean, Simpson was independently wealthy, and Cole wasn't. Yeah, um, Mackenzie was definitely not independently wealthy, <laughs> um, and 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 what's his name? I've, I've, I'm spaced out. I had a long, had an early morning, but uh, the famous gentleman uh, who who was the who who quit golf architecture to start tending roses, uh, the the George Thomas. I mean, again, he didn't need the oh, money. That's right. Yeah, so I think I think it it does it does help not needing the money to be a good golf architect. Um, and and also I think it does help to come of course I'm biased but it does help to come into this business later. If you think of you know virtually all of the you know I mean look at it Colt came into the business after being having been a lawyer, uh, Mackenzie after I've been a doctor, uh, Tom Simpson I came into the business after I've been I guess a lawyer, not a very successful one but a lawyer. Um, Fowler same thing. Um, so I don't know. I think there is there is something there is something to it to to maybe do other things in life first before you get into this. But maybe I'm wrong. I think maybe the best way. I, I don't know if there's a best way to. I don't to think there a, is. Yeah. No. I mean, you get such such great work from such a variety of people that there's really no blueprint. No, exactly, exactly. And it's like sometimes even say it's also with some other like maybe sometimes your first work is the best you've ever done you know and uh, maybe your last work is uh, what you often see with 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 with, you know writers is that some of the first work is the most original and the most um the best i'm not sure that's true with architects but probably probably is with some and and with others it's not i had this conversation with uh trevor dormer about like rock bands yeah. your music like sometimes yeah. their the group's first albums are so fresh and energetic and kind of cutting edge and different 
And then they, yeah. they can never recapture that. They might change and get more complicated and things, but it doesn't always, you know, like it doesn't always get better. It, it, it just maybe gets more complex and, uh, and other people get better as they, as they go along. The Beatles got more complicated and also better. I think most people would say. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think, I think, but it's, I think it's interesting. I think anybody who is, I mean, I think the joy is, and that comes back to what I was saying about the jam session. I mean, the joy I've always found that I, I maybe also because in a previous life I worked in, 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 in teams and in groups and I've always been a team player in terms of, of, of hockey, being a hockey player. I really, even though, you know, being an architect is in some sense a very individualistic job, but I'm always trying to look for working in, in talented groups of people because that, that's just the most fun. And I think you get the best results as well. And then I prefer to do it in a non-hierarchical way where you, you're not the boss of somebody because I think the best and the brightest, that's what I learned in, in um, uh, the best and the brightest will always want to be their own boss. So... Yeah, I, I'd rather work with somebody because they want to work with me, not because they're going to get a paycheck from me. Yeah, and um, and that I think is the is the cool, you know. Well, and sometimes you manage to do that, sometimes not. But that that's the goal that I have to work with, you know, work with the best and the brightest because it's more fun. And I think in the end you get the best. I think you also get the best results. Well, you mentioned you had an early morning, so I won't keep you too much longer. But uh, before we start to close out, I I wanted to ask you about golf on in continental Europe. I obviously. I'm an American. I come from a, I'm an American centric, very American dominated point of view. I have not played golf in Europe on the continent. What is, and, and you, you work, you grew you know, you from the Netherlands, you, most of your work is there now, but you also have experience in the United States. What is the state of golf in Europe right now on the continent? What are, what are its potentials, you know, going forward? And then how do you juxtapose that against the where, where golf is in America right now? I know that's a huge subject, so I'll let you tackle that however you want to. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. the, the difference between the two, and why, do, why don't we as an Americans have more awareness of, of golf in Europe? I guess because um, Golf Digest and Golf Magazine and whoever else just feed you, um, you know, Ireland, Scotland. And to a less extent, England. I mean, the best one, the best, I think the one of the two best golf trips you can make in the world is to fly into Amsterdam and play the Dutch courses and fly into Paris and play the Paris courses and then hop up and play, you know, the course on the on the, the Channel Coast. And very few people do. They're, they're also much cheaper trips as well than going to, say, Ireland or to. And I think quality wise, you'd be you'd be hard pressed to you know they, they're they're at par i mean basically you play royal hague you play kenner you play the pun and you, you got top 100 courses of the world pretty much as far as i'm you know and not far behind a nordwag uh eindhoven uh and and that's just five six courses in the netherlands that are all like between an hour and you know 30 minutes an hour drive from either utrecht or amsterdam so if i you know if I'm, I'm not the dutch tourist board but i would say come to Amsterdam's a fun city as well. Uh, same with Paris. I mean, Paris has got a lot of very, very good um, uh, Simpson stuff around it. You can also play the Ryder Cup course. You can go up to Le Touquet, Hartelow. Obviously, I'm biased because I, I worked on those, but the, yeah. that would be that's a two, three-hour trip to go up north, and it's it's worth it. Um, what a lot of people don't realize either is if you fly into London, you know, going to Le Touquet is very quick as well because you can go through the channel. It's like a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour trip to get there. So... That's something to combine it with. Um, now, in general, I would say Europe has a lot of golf courses, but a lot of really, really poor ones. I mean, um, 
unfortunately, a lot of the golf courses in Europe got built in the in the 80s and 90s, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and that was not the golden age of golf, as we both know. Um, yeah, I'm trying to do my best to help make some of them better. Uh, although, you know, that's most of my time is on spending on restoring classic course spells or work with more modern courses. That I would say we're still about 50 years behind behind you know England in terms of understanding golf the the, the overall population of people in, in in Europe I mean in Germany they still expect the fairways to be very green uh, Holland's already getting better I mean in Holland they understand that yellow is the new green mm-hmm. um, but yeah so it's not you know it's not as much of a, a sport that lives with people as it does in um, in Scotland definitely in Scotland and Ireland uh, lesser in England and and the US uh, maybe we'll get there. It's been seen as a very elitist sport. It was very much the rich people's sport. So, uh, again, that is changing. Uh, it's been seen as an old people's sport. I think that's still the case. It's still very hard to get young people to play it. You see with the, you, you know, people don't want to spend as much time on anything uh, as, as the famous book Bowling Alone. Uh, people don't want to join clubs. They don't want to do this. They want to, so you need to you need to give them something which takes less time. And uh, that's why I think we're going to see more shorter courses, more six, nine hole reversible courses that I've been working on. Yeah. So that's I mean, I think Europe is is it has some the, the problem with Europe is that by the time that people really wanted to build golf courses, uh, they couldn't get into the areas that were most suited for it. Uh, so the UK has more fantastic golf courses in nature areas. Um, we have fantastic nature areas in the Netherlands, but there's no way we were ever going to build golf courses in them. If we would have been 100 years earlier, we would have had, as I said, 50, 50 you, know, you know, on the whole coast, the west coast of the Netherlands, you could put 50 world-class links courses. I encourage anybody to go to Google Maps and, and look at this area. I was doing it, and you just tell from photographs that this is perfect golf landscapes dunes open land i mean rumpled i miss it just looks like you can see like golf course golf course golf course golf course yeah exactly i mean and that's without even the the the, there's some dune islands north of the netherlands called wada we call them wada w-a-d-d-e-n uh one islands that again if you're an american you, you come over to europe go go play some golf go you know take your family to these islands they're amazing i mean they're they're like you know no no cars basically just bicycles uh, again no unfortunately also no golf courses only not small ones but uh it, it's as, as pure as a coastal nature area will be and you know maybe it's good that we didn't have all those 50 golf courses uh, you know i'm i'm too mine the other one that's really cool and i, I tweeted about them uh, about half a year ago we walked with my family part of what's called the the dutch coastal path and it, it's like the we took the track from basically from the hague to zandvoort which is where kenemer is and it's like a two-day walking trip and just it's amazing i mean you see some i posted then i, th- I must have seen at least 50 completely natural fantastic looking bunkers and i just took pictures of it just posted it on twitter and mm. a lot of people were amazed by you know they look better than most bunkers i see on golf courses as you said you know those will never be developed i'm sure and but there yeah. must be there must be other places in europe that are how have great are have great golf sites great natural golf sites that could potentially be developed if demand ever 
reaches a critical yeah, point. Basically, if you if you look at it, Slovakia, I mean, a good good you know, a uh, friend of mine, Jonathan Davison, who's a, a, a talented architect, mm-hmm. built the Panati, built a, the second course of Panati, and basically, if you look at Panati, I, I spent a weekend with him there, and you you could build two, three more pine valleys there. It's amazing, it's sandy, beautiful site. The problem is, you know no comprehension of the population for golf and for you know so uh they they're very keen to have island greens and um you know stuff like that and you laugh it's, but that's what it is and so yeah, it's a learning um, phase everybody has to go through it. yeah so the, unfortunately you would need somebody who would then be and, and plus what they would do is they just say oh well let's get jack nicholas in or you know nothing wrong with jack nicholas but it's 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 very much brand oriented because it's 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 new money uh people have you know gained the wealth fairly soon and they they want you know brands so they want hermes and they want lafitte rothschild and they want jack nicholas you know and i think this again don't don't get me wrong they they they, they, i i i always enjoy playing on a jack nicholas course that may sound strange but i do enjoy them uh, but it's a different product it will be good and there's nothing wrong with that product what what you would want to have is a more diverse um a more diverse portfolio what you find is that these new emerging markets always go for brands in the first instances rather than uh you know take turkey is another good example they've just gone for brand brand names you know so it's gary player yeah. it's jack nicholas yeah. p die and it would be, and just because they just don't know the market Right. Uh, and that's the same with some of the other places. I mean, I've heard there's some really great coasts in, uh, in uh, you know, call it the, the Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, where you could still do stuff. Uh, I think Turkey has some amazing coastline still where you could do stuff. Uh, I've heard the Krim used to be very, you could have built some good golf courses there. Not anymore, um, is my guess. Yeah, so I think, yeah, the, the problem is anywhere in Europe, which is, you know, more regulated by the EU, it's going to be tough to build anything in a in a beautiful nature site, and that's the way it is. Um, there's still uh, enough other places where you could still do something, uh, but unfortunately, that means why we'll always be behind, say, the uh, the likes of uh, you know Ireland and Scotland and, and 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 England because they were able to go into these areas before the protection started. Yeah, a few questions before we go. Well, infinite variety. Where did that name come from? Well, it came it came from um, it came from basically pretty much all the architects, the ones that we discuss, all use the term infinite variety. If you go and see Harry Cold used it, Alistair McKenzie used it, Tom Simpson used it. I think some of the Americans used it. And where it seems to come from, it's from Shakespeare. Shakespeare used it somewhere. Infinite variety. If you Google it, you'll find it. It's in one of his, I think I don't know, one of his books or one of his, you know place um and and what it stands for is that you know that's what you're striving for you're striving for infinite variety which is what's provided by nature and um yeah i you know it's it's marketing so and you know i could have called myself frank pond golf design well that's Uh, what's striking about it is because i i'm racking my brains to think of another firm that isn't just called you know the names of the proprietors well renaissance renaissance yeah renaissance I guess people call people just call him Tom Doak. He's sort of yeah. Well, people call me Frank. <laughs> Frank. I mean, Vaughan. yeah. You can try. I think. I think. Um, I thought Infinite Variety was a nice name. It, it does. Unfortunately, it's, you can imagine some of the Europeans breaking their neck on that on that name. Uh, it's always funny. 
get my uh, for the tax authorities. I always need to get my hotel bills with you know infinite variety golf design. I just write it down. Discount, compare. You know, in Madrid they have a hard time getting that on paper. So yeah, no, that's so that's the background of that one, and I like I like the name. Uh, you know, would have been easier to just call myself Frank Punk. No, I time. like it too. I think it, it I think it sends it sends a positive message. It, it's in the insight. world. Yeah. So you have a very special relationship with Cruden Bay. Uh, you've done some work there, and I know you love that golf course. Um, what is your favorite other than Cruden Bay? What is what is your favorite Lynx golf course? Oh, there's so many. I'm a member at uh, Makranish. I think Makranish is a special place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very special place, and and. Um, I I think when I was in the city, I became a, I, I discovered that I could be. I think I was on. I, I remember I was on. A, I was in a Miami airport waiting for a flight going to Europe, and I bought this. I think it was Golf Digest or something, and it said, "Well, did you know that you could become an overseas member for very very little money?" At you know, all these names, and one of them was Makarhanish, and I, I think I, I went there like three months later, and uh, and I think I you could at that point you could still become a member of the club, and it cost two hundred pounds a year. This is a top 100 golf course in the world, and uh, so I've always uh, and and you know other than I'm being a Dutchman, so I'm uh, like I like good deals. The best deal I did is is I have a, a I bought a life membership at Karn for a thousand euros. <laughs> that was like 50, 20 years ago or 25 years ago. But then on the other hand, I never go there very often, so I think it's the deal is still better for them than it is for me. But but. Yeah. Um, uh, both of them are very. I'm, so I'm a member at Karn. I'm a member at uh, at Markohanish. Very different courses, but both of them I love. Uh, I love the 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 Markohanish is probably the ultimate minimalism. I mean, basically the green sides. Basically, they've changed so little there. You know, uh, one of the better old Tom Morris um, uh, ventures, and of course, since he was there, I, many many things changed. But it, it's probably one of the better minimalistic sites I know, with some crazy greens. I mean, you talk about crazy greens. Um, and then Karn is is very different, and Eddie ha- Eddie Hackett uh, design also minimalistic, but he was. I mean, the dunes are much more extreme there, and he had to he had to you know, there's some holes there that are you know anybody in America would call them unfair, but I like him for that <laughs> reason. Yeah, yeah. What do you think uh, of uh, Makarhanish Dunes done by your old, I guess, I guess temporary boss David Kidd? Yeah, and by Connor Walsh, who was involved in that as well. I oh, mean, um, okay. yeah, yeah, he was there as well, and he, he also played a big role in the in the Castle Course. Um, I, right. you know, let's start with the Castle Course. Actually, it gets a lot of crap from a lot of people. I, I like. I think it's tremendous. I, I went on Twitter the other day. I also said that not only to please David, but you know, I think it's a good effort. I was always impressed with what they managed to do there on a very unpromising side. It would have been interesting to see what, say, Doak or, or uh, because he's such a critic of it, would have done with that side. Uh, I think David did a good. I think it's a good routing. I think it's some you know interesting landscape that he created there on something that was a, just a flat field. Um, the greens are too extreme, but they mellow them. You know, yeah, you, you can make mistakes, and maybe that was a mistake. But I think the golf course is good. Going back to Makarhanish Dunes, I think it's. I dreamed of building on that side because I, I was a member at Makarhanish, and I remember I told you know when I was in Edinburgh, I said, "Can we do a project building a golf course in there?" And we never got to do that. But then David was lucky enough to be able to build a golf course there. Um, I think it's a. I think it's a great side. I think the golf course is. Um, the one thing I would say is I, I'm not excited about the routing. The the one mistake thing I would have done different is is it has two loops of nine, which then 
you know, compromises the routing a bit. Uh, because it's a long site, it, I think it would have been working better to to have one loop of 18, which, given that it's a resort course, nobody ever played, you know, most people play it once in their life, they're going to play 18 holes. Um, and now you have in the second nine, you have a couple of long par threes, which are really connector holes, which are, you know, which is, uh, at, at least I found that unfortunate. But, you know, I'm now nitpicking. For the rest, the green sites are wild. Um, it's a beautiful site and, you know, uh, it's, I can recommend only everybody to, to go and play, you know, Makrohanish, Makrohanish Dunes, find out which one you like better and play Dernavity when you're there in any case, the best, the best sort of, you know, that could be the best 18 hole par three course in the world. Unfortunately, they, they've, they squeezed in a couple of par fours and one par five. If they got rid of those and just made it a par three course, it would probably be the best par three course in the world. If you hadn't gotten to golf design, I think you had a, a career in a, as a golf tour operator. You're dropping some great, <laughs> some great hints and some some great leads here. Well, maybe we should do another another one someday. You know, if you if you run out of other guests, I'll we'll do the you know where where to go and do around the world with Frank Pond. Who knows? Well, I know other people have traveled much more and seen much more places. I'm 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 you know lucky enough to be. Uh, I'm actually also on the the golf magazine panel, but. Um, uh, I, I, you know, obviously I've been to some place in America. The, my, my biggest problem is time. I like yourself. I have young kids. I have a wife who doesn't play golf. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm a member at, you know, Royal Hague and the Pond, two of the best courses in, in the Netherlands for sure, and some of the best courses in the world. And, and I just play far too little. So unfortunately, uh, my my wish would be one day to be have the time to go and, you know, maybe after my golf architecture period i'll i'll become a golf traveler or photographer or whatever but may, maybe not i don't know that's still we'll my see. that's still my wish in my life is to actually go play a lot more golf than i do yeah i guess <laughs> last question last question yeah. this ties into what we we're just talking about um i ask everybody just about everybody who comes on the podcast this question so what what is your favorite modern golf course that you were not involved in any way building uh favorite or the golf course that just suits your eye or your taste the most and by modern it could be you know last 25 30 years yeah i'd have to go that, that that's a good one i'm thinking through the ones that i've played uh I, I, yeah, I think I, I I've come I come back to uh, I probably like Panati a lot. Also because of the you know I think it was one of the first big Davidson did the, the course in Slovakia. It had some holes that I didn't like, but that was because of the client telling him you know like the island green stuff. Um, no, that's not he didn't have an island green, but there were some inputs which he couldn't help. I like that a lot. Um, I Castle Stewart. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those those would be the ones most. What stands I mean, out about Castle Stewart? What? What stands out about Castle Stewart to you? Well, that it it it's that they didn't try to make it too hard. That they 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 you know basically it's it's a less exciting play it's not the most exciting it's got good views but for the rest it was not an easy site to work with and i think what is interesting is the detailing of the bunkering the visuals of the bunkering the green complexes 
it's 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 fun golf it's it before fun golf became fashionable it was fun this was a fun golf course before fun became fashionable yeah i mean i i funny enough i i guess i i it's it's a, it's funny you 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 got me you got me a bit there and that i didn't know that this question was going to come um to be honest, I enjoy most of the older courses better. But then I haven't seen that many of the modern classics. Believe it or not, I haven't been to Bandon Dunes yet. Uh, I haven't been to Sand Valley. Um, that's one of the curses of being a you know a busy architect is that you don't have much time to travel. I haven't been to Barnboogle. I haven't seen Kings you know King's right. Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, having seen the pictures of it, that looks good. Oh, actually, I do. Uh, yeah, there is one course which I forgot. You know, Kingsley. Kingsley Club. That's yeah. Not- your friend Mike DeVries. Yeah, and of course I'm biased there because I work with him. But that was, um, I think that was that was a course I really really liked. I you know I, uh, I really because I went up there to see obviously uh, Kings of Cub and 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 um, uh, next door uh, the McKenzie course, Crystal Downs. Crystal Downs. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I'm spaced out now. I am That's too. <laughs> Crystal Downs. Yeah, I did. I, 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 did, I couldn't help you on George Thomas, and I barely got in Crystal Downs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, it's it's just too much too much stuff that we've been talking about. No, I I really like Kingsley. I mean, again, there's some stuff. It's always interesting. You know, I walked around with Mike, and you know, Mike's probably you know one of the guys I admire most. Um, you know, if he, he you know, it, I, I I wish he he would have gotten some some more sights in the past and I hope he will get some more sites in the future uh, because he, he can build amazing stuff. And, and when we walk through it, it's interesting because, you know, you get to the, you know, nitpicking to the, to the 10th degree where we're talking about like, you know, a tree here or there or why this or why that. And it's fun. And the, you know, that's always fun because how the only way you learn is by getting feedback. And that's the same for him. It's the same for me. And then you walk through something and you just, you're like a kid of three. Why did you do this? Why did you, could you have done that? Why did you do this? And that was a course that, that I found a lot of fun to play. I mean, for me, the most, I I just want to be, the best courses are the ones where if once you finish them you want to play them again. Yeah. Yeah. And and um and that's what we try to do as architects is get people to want to play the courses again, the good courses that we make. So it's a simple standard and yet pretty hard to achieve. You know, golf is a simple sport and if you give people fun and enjoyment, they'll, they'll want to come back and that seems to be what golf is is really trying to to la- grasp onto and 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 maybe is isn't quite there yet. It's missing, you know. When we talk about the health of golf, and you it's, brought up the course about you know smaller golf courses, three, nine, six hole loops. Um, yeah. That's trying to deliver pleasure, it's, which it's, is it's, hasn't always been the goal. It's pleasure. I think it's pleasure. I think it's it's a you know. I think what you see is emphasizing specific areas. I think pleasure is important. You have to have fun. If you don't enjoy, you're not going to come back. I think the other thing is you have to. It, a golf course has to make you think. And one of the biggest compliments I got is when when we had the Buddha in Holland and they played Swinkles. Is that people said this is the golf course that made me think the most ever. Mm-hmm. Every shot I had to think. Now that might overdo it, but that's I think important as well. If you have a golf course where you do not have to think. And that might be, you know, you can build a very fun golf course, but one that's not where you don't have to think that will get boring over time. So you have to have a golf course where you have to think. And then the third thing is a golf course has to seduce you, has to seduce you, has to tempt you to do things that you really shouldn't be doing. 
Yeah? And why? Because again, that's what makes it special. It, it, ha it should have shots which, you know, no professional will hit, but you will hit it because you think you might be able to pull it off. And, and that's, I think that's critical as well. So those are the three elements. And then it should be beautiful. I mean, my wife once doesn't mind walking with me at the pun or, or at, at Royal Hay because it's, or at my, my latest reversible Links Valley, which is a nine hole reversible in the Netherlands, because it's just a beautiful site because she, she just wants to walk there. And I think those are, if you combine those elements, then you get a long way. You know what? I think we should leave it right there. I could, that's a beautiful summation of, of what golf should be. And then we're going to just, we're going to write out on those thoughts, Frank. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking to me. Okay. I thought that went pretty well. Uh, before you click off, I would like to encourage you to share this podcast with others. If you see it, uh, me post an episode on Twitter, please retweet it, share it with friends. You can go to iTunes on your phone, give the podcast a star rating and a review. Subscribe to the show while you're there. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the other TalkingGolf.com podcasts, State of the Game, Talking Golf History, the IC Golf Podcast. Just generally, you can help us all out by following us and liking us and uh, giving us a, a rating and a review. A couple quick clerical notes. Frank cut out a little bit on the, uh, the ultimate question I ask everybody about their favorite modern golf course. Just to be clear, he said uh, his first answer was the Panati Golf Resort in Slovakia that was designed by uh, another architect, his friend that he mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jonathan Davidson. So that was his, his first answer, Panati in Slovakia. Infinite variety, the, the term does come from Shakespeare. That's from Anthony and Cleopatra. And I just kind of wanted to come back around to the, the last thing that Frank was talking about, the the idea of seduction in golf course architecture. Without seduction in design, there's no mystery. There's no mystique. Uh, without seduction, there's no temptation. Without temptation, there's nothing to gain. Golf shots should have consequence. Great golf courses constantly ask you to try to gain a position, to try to be somewhere with your shot versus someplace else with your shot. You're trying to get, get an angle. You're trying to get yardage. You're trying to outmaneuver the golf course or your opponent. If a golf course doesn't present opportunities of seduction and temptation, if it doesn't ask you to get outside of your comfort zone and try to actually do something, accomplish something with your shot other than just hitting it down the middle, the golf course will not last. It won't have integrity, and uh, it's not going to be that kind of golf course that you want to go back and play again and again, which is what Frank was saying. So I just, I love that idea of t seduction and temptation. I thought Frank explained it really well, and I, I couldn't leave without kind of following up on that. Um, one last thing, go to infinitevariety.com. Uh, Frank's a great photographer, too. His, his photographs on that website, I believe he took all or most of them, are, are, are very, speaking of seduction, they're very seductive, really gorgeous. I've uh, included a, a couple of them on uh, uh, show notes page. Visit that website. You can see what else he's been up to recently. Thanks to Frank for joining. Thanks to you for listening. We'll get out of here now. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again next time, adios. Adios.